Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, here we are. A new season of Destination Disaster. This season, we are going to primarily focus on man-made disasters throughout the world. It's quite alarming that time and time again, humans have not learned from their mistakes, and only continue to damage the world in which we live. This episode, we're going to famous on probably the most famous environmental disaster that we all know. We are discussing the Chernobyl disaster. This event would force an entire city to evacuate, leaving the ghost town of Pripyat as a grim reminder that humans are not invincible, nor are we an all-knowing species. For those of you that are returning for this season, welcome back. Many of you have been around since the beginning of this podcast. And without you, we wouldn't reach where we have gotten to today. So for that, I say thank you. For those of you that are new to the podcast this season, just know that this community welcomes you with open arms. Community is the lifeblood of this podcast, and without you all, it simply wouldn't exist and I would be speaking into an eternal nothingness. Please know that hate nor racism is allowed in any form in this community. If I identify you, you will be immediately banned and barred from ever joining this show again. There are just a couple of housekeeping notes before we jump into the content for today. Please know that this episode will contain depictions of graphic death to include radiation sickness, cancers, and environmental destruction. I advise all who choose to listen to this episode to listen at your own risk and pace yourselves as it will get heavy. With that out of the way, let's go ahead and jump into the episode. formation and dissolution of the Soviet Union, nuclear power was one of the main sources of energy utilized, accounting for 10% of power generated by the Soviets. Had the Soviet Union lasted and not collapsed, the government planned to ramp up nuclear generating capabilities into the year 2000 by 400 to 500%. 
in the year 1960, the Soviet Union had a nuclear power capacity of 605 megawatts. By 1975, this capacity was increased to 4.7 gigawatts. At this point, the Soviet Union was committed to developing an aggressive nuclear power program. Throughout the 1970s, approximately 10% of electricity powering the Soviet Union came from nuclear power plants, and predictions made by the Deputy Minister of Power Energy aimed for an increase by approximately 400 to 500% by the year 2000. Today, there are several nuclear generating facilities still in operation. However, one of my concerns here is that many of these facilities are planned to shut down within the next decade, meaning that there will be a need to dispose of the leftover nuclear material. Chernobyl was chosen as the location of Ukraine's first nuclear power plant in the now-abandoned town of Pripyat, which is located about 10 miles northwest of Chernobyl and 10 miles from the Ukraine-Belarus border. The plant was commissioned in four phases, with the turbines coming online between 1978 and 1984. For my electricians in the crowd, the station is connected to both the 330-kilovolt and 750-kilovolt lines. The block has two electrical generators connected to the 750-kilovolt grid by a single-generator transformer. The generators are connected to their common transformer by two switches in series. Between them, the unit transformers are connected to the supply power to the power plant's own systems. Each generator can therefore be connected to the unit transformer to power the plant, or to the unit transformer and the generator transformer to also feed power to the grid. The station could power itself via generators, but if needed, the 750 kilovolt national grid could provide power to the station. The 330 kilovolt system served primarily as an external power source. In case of total external power loss, the essential systems could be powered by diesel generators. Each unit's transformer is therefore connected to two 6 kilovolt main power line switchboards, A and B powering principal essential systems and connected to even another transformer at 4 kilovolts, which is backed up twice. The 7A, 7B, and 8B boards are also connected to three essential power lines for the coolant pumps, each also having its own diesel generator. In case of a coolant circuit failure with simultaneous loss of external power, the essential power can be supplied by spinning down turbo generators for about 45 to 50 seconds, during which time the diesel generators should start up. The generators were automatically started within 15 seconds at loss of off-site power. Energy was generated by a pair of rather large 2x500 megawatt twin turbo generators which were cooled by hydrogen. These twin turbo generators are located in the 600 meter long machine hall. The turbines, the venerable 5-cylinder K500-6500-3000, are supplied by the Kharkiv turbine plant. The electrical generators are the TBB500. The turbine and generator rotors are mounted on the same shaft. The combined weight of the rotors is almost 200 tons or 220 short tons, and their speed is 3,000 revolutions per minute. The turbo generator itself is 39 meters long and weighs an astounding 1,200 tons. The coolant flow for each turbine is 82,880 tons per hour. The generator produces 20 kilovolts at 50 hertz of AC power. The generator's stator is cooled by water while its rotor is cooled by hydrogen. The hydrogen for the generators is manufactured on-site by electrolysis. The design and reliability of the turbines earned the state prize of Ukraine for 1979. The Kharkiv turbine plant later developed a new version of the turbine, the K565-3000-2, 
in an attempt to reduce use of valuable metal. The Chernobyl plant was equipped with both types of turbines. Block 4 had the newer ones. The newer turbines, however, turned out to be more sensitive to their operating parameters and their bearings had frequent problems with vibrations. Prior to the actual disaster that occurred in 1986, there were two previous emergencies, the first occurring in 1982. A faulty cooling valve would lead to a partial core meltdown in reactor number one as a result of the valve sticking following routine maintenance. While no one was killed, failure to report the partial meltdown out of sheer negligence resulted in the release of large amounts of radiation in the form of uranium oxide and other isotopes escaping one of the ventilation stacks. No public statement was made to the public within proximity to the plant despite very public cleanup operations taking place in the community. Following a quick repair, the reactor was back up in operation in eight months. The next accident was suspiciously kept secret according to newly released KGB documents in 2021. In a translated document provided by the Wilson Center, it shows the KGB in the region was aware of an accident in what sounds like reactor number one. Please be aware that the translation of this letter is not perfect and some parts may not make complete sense. The Oblast Committee of Ukraine is aware about the consequences of an accident at the Atomic Energy Station, Kiev region. Report number 248SV described the fall of a radioactive isotope on the 14th of September 1982 on a graphite surface as a result of an accident in the reactor of the first energy block at the Chernobyl Atomic Energy Station, according to the Department of Labor Safety and Atomic Energy Station Radioactive Safety. As of the morning of September 14th, an increase in the level of gamma radiation had taken place in the unused premises of the reactor's gas circuit and drainage systems of 1,000 microrotengens a second, which exceeds the allowable limit by 100 times. Furthermore, as a consequence of the ejection of radioactive steam through a ventilation pipe at a time when it was raining, the local contamination of the territory is about 250 meters, the level of radiation 0.01 to 0.02 microrems a second, which is significantly lower than the allowable standard. As a result of the measures taken, raising the contaminated areas with water and burying them with earth and leaves by 20 meters of the same day, the level of radiation lowered to the standard. The situation at the Atomic Energy Station in the city of Pripyat is normal and is being controlled by the KGB administration. The KGB administration is performing operations to prevent panic, provocative rumors, and other negative incidents in connection with this occurrence. The USSR KGB is informed. Once again, Sorry for that translation, but that is literally how the letter read once it was translated. We're going to take a quick break right here to allow an ad from some of our sponsors. We'll be right back. Alright, we're back. Hopefully you all just didn't listen to 30 seconds of dead air. If you did, I truly appreciate the dedication there. The Chernobyl catastrophe quite literally shaped the world that we see today when it concerns nuclear safety and regulations, medical advancements, and environmental impacts. With the exception of the Fukushima disaster, which we will discuss later in the season, Chernobyl is the worst rated nuclear catastrophe to occur in history 
and shows that negligence shows no bounds. Beginning in the early morning hours of April 26, 1986, reactor number four experienced a catastrophic failure following a test to identify if the steam turbine was able to power the emergency feed water pumps in the event of simultaneous loss of external power and coolant pipe rupture. Following an accidental drop in reactor power to near zero, the operators restarted the reactor in preparation for the turbine test with a prohibited control rod configuration. Upon successful completion of the test, the reactor was then shut down for maintenance. Due to a variety of factor, this action resulted in a power surge at the base of the reactor which brought about the rupture of reactor components and the loss of coolant. This process led to steam explosions and a meltdown which destroyed the containment building. This was followed by a reactor core fire which lasted until May 4, 1986, during which airborne radioactive contaminants were spread throughout the USSR and Europe. As the scram continued, the reactor output jumped to around 30,000 megawatts, 10 times its normal operational output, the indicated last reading on the power meter on the control panel. Some estimates the power spike may have gone 10 times higher than that. It was not possible to reconstruct the precise sequence of the processes that led to the destruction of the reactor and the power unit building, but a steam explosion like the explosion of a steam boiler from excess vapor pressure, appears to have been the next event. There is a general understanding that it was the explosive steam pressure from the damaged fuel channels escaping into the reactor's exterior cooling structure that caused the explosion that destroyed the reactor casing, tearing off and blasting the upper plate called the upper biological shield to which the entire reactor assembly is fastened through the roof of the reactor building. This is believed to be the first explosion that many heard. According to a research article published by Edvar Geist, he attributes the delayed response due to the Soviet's inability to communicate between agencies. The contradictions between Soviet institutions' hierarchy, as I, Edvar Geist, termed them, prevented the USSR's government from responding appropriately during the Chernobyl disaster. The problem with the different agencies that existed within the USSR government is that each agency measured risk differently meaning that there was not one consistent response from the government when the country needed it most. Instead of the government providing a combined response immediately, it occurred in phases, the first beginning from the initial explosion until that same evening. Initially, evacuations were not ordered for those within Chernobyl, and the immediate mission was to contain the fire and prevent further spread of radioactive material into the environment. When the explosion occurred, the debris led to an additional five fires on the roof of the complex. A story provided by the first arriving fire brigade tells a story of deception at the hands of the power plant staff. It was initially believed that this fire was a simple electrical fire. However, upon exiting their fire apparatus, chunks of graphite were identified, showing this would be a far more complex incident. A story provided by fire apparatus driver Gregor Kremel tells that story. We arrived there at 10 or 15 minutes to 2 in the morning. We saw graphite scattered about. Misha asked, is that graphite? I kicked it away, but one of the other firefighters on the other truck picked it up. It's hot, he said. The pieces of graphite were of different sizes, some big, some small enough to pick them up. We didn't know much about radiation. Even those who worked there had no idea. There was no water left in the trucks. Misha filled a cistern and we aimed the water at the top. Then those boys who died went up to the roof, Bashchik, Koya, and others, and Volodya Pravik, 
they went up the ladder, and I never saw them again. As the hours passed, those who lived in Pripyat began to worry and wonder why evacuations hadn't begun, especially as more emergency personnel began to arrive. The second phase of the Chernobyl response would officially kick off on April 27th and culminate on May 14th. On May 2nd, the initial exclusion zone would be established, now known as the Black Zone. This area measures 10 kilometers or 6.2 miles, encompassing the plant and the city of Pripyat itself. This zone would continue to be expanded. This phase would also include the initial evacuations of 53,000 people at approximately 11 a.m. Most were told to only bring enough food and clothing for up to three days. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play the initial USSR broadcast that was announced to people in the city of Pripyat. And then what I will do is I will read the translation following that. Городской совет народных депутатов сообщает, что в связи с аварией на Чернобыльской атомной электростанции в городе Припяти складывается неблагоприятная радиационная обстановка. Партийными и советскими органами, воинскими частями принимаются необходимые меры. Однако... С целью обеспечения полной безопасности людей и в первую очередь детей возникает необходимость провести временную эвакуацию жителей города и пункты Киевской области. Для этого каждому жилому дому сегодня, 27 апреля, Начиная с 14.00 часов, начиная с 14.00 часов, будут поданы автобусы в сопровождении работников милиции и представителей горисполкома. Рекомендуется с собой взять документы, крайне необходимые вещи, а также на первый случай продукты питания. Руководителями предприятий и учреждений определен круг работников, которые остаются на месте для обеспечения нормального функционирования города. Все жилые дома на период эвакуации будут заняться работниками милиции. Товарищи, Временно оставляя свое жилье, не забудьте, пожалуйста, закрыть окна, выключить электрические и газовые приборы, перекрыть водопроводные краны. Просим соблюдать спокойствие, организованность и порядок при проведении временной эвакуации. For the attentions of the residents of Pripyat. The City Council informs you that due to the accident at Chernobyl Power Station in the city of Pripyat, the radioactive conditions in the vicinity are deteriorating. The Communist Party, its officials, and the armed forces are taking necessary steps to combat this. Nevertheless, with the view to keep people as safe and healthy as possible, the children being top priority, we need to temporarily evacuate citizens in the nearest towns of Kiev region for these reasons. Starting from April 27, 1986 at 2 p.m., 
Each apartment block will be able to have a bus at its disposal, supervised by the police and the city officials. It is highly advisable to take your documents, some vital personal belongings, and a certain amount of food, just in case, with you. The senior executives of public and industrial facilities of the cities has decided on the list of employees needed to stay in the Pripyat to maintain these facilities in a good working order. All the houses will be guarded by the police during the evacuation period. Comrades, leaving your residences temporarily, please make sure you have turned off the lights, electrical equipment, and water and shut the windows. Please keep calm and orderly in the process of this short-term evacuation. The evacuation would, in fact, be permanent, leading to the abandonment of the city of Pripyat. This shows a continued deception by Soviet response officials trying to downplay how catastrophic this disaster was and to keep it as secretive as possible. However, this plan that had worked in the past failed massively as the immense amounts of radiation would begin to alert Western countries and would ultimately force the Soviet Union to officially acknowledge the disaster. Mikhail Gorbachev's televised address on May 14th inaugurated the final phase, during which the government begrudgingly adopted a policy of increasing candor as heroic efforts to contain the consequences of the accident proceeded. Unfortunately, this attitude shift could not undo the effects of the government's earlier dishonesty, the consequences of which continued to haunt it for years to come. In reviewing further research, Soviet ideology didn't involve proper preparedness activities and instead allowed for minor nuclear accidents, as baffling as this may sound. Decades of promises to electrify the country forced engineers to cut corners and choose cheaper materials for reactor designs, which is one of the reasons why Chernobyl was such a catastrophic disaster. Following the diligent actions of thousands of emergency response workers, some ultimately succumbed to the effects of acute radiation sickness in the days and weeks following the disaster. One such story comes from the 6th Paramilitary Fire Rescue Unit, which was the fire station assigned to the city of Pripyat and Chernobyl itself. Every responding member of this department succumbed to acute radiation sickness, most suffering as their bodies failed. Each one of these firefighters climbed to the roof in an attempt to extinguish the fires emanating. This would be where they would receive lethal doses of radiation. Most would collapse and have to be transferred to the local hospital, later being transferred to Moscow Hospital No. 6, which specialized in radiation and burns. The leader of the squad that initially fought the fire, Vasily Ignatenko, seems to have suffered the most. After hours of firefighting, he eventually succumbed to the early symptoms of ARS and collapsed. He was taken to Pripyat Hospital and then later taken to Hospital No. 6 in Moscow. He died on May 13, 1986. He was one of the six who got closest to the reactor. According to reports, when he died, his feet were so swollen, no shoes fit on him. Same with his face, which was so swollen, his eyes were barely visible. His radiation burns combined with brown, slightly blue, and gray. For those of you who don't know, acute radiation sickness isn't immediately fatal and can take days or weeks for those suffering to die. Combined cleanup efforts took months to complete and started with foundation stabilization. There was a major concern that the burning material would melt through the concrete floor and contaminate the groundwater. The method selected was to have subway builders and coal miners dig a tunnel under the nuclear power plant and install the necessary cooling measures. The final makeshift design for the cooling system was to incorporate a coiled formation of pipes cooled with water and covered on top with a thin thermally conductive graphite layer. The graphite layer as a natural refractory material would prevent the concrete from melting. 
The graphite cooling plate layer was to be encapsulated between two concrete layers, each one meter thick for stabilization. The system was designed by Leonid Bolshov, the director of the Institute for Nuclear Safety and Development, formed in 1988. Bolshov's graphite concrete sandwich would be similar in concept to later core catchers that are now part of many nuclear reactor designs. Cleanup would encompass the removal of over 100 tons of contaminated materials from the roof. Initially planned to be completed by robots designed and constructed in the Soviet Union, deployment of these robots were met with quick failure due to the incredibly high radiation levels damaging the batteries. This is where we witness the deployment of the Chernobyl liquidators. These courageous workers donned rubber suits and would shovel the tons of materials from the roof needed to be able to construct the concrete sarcophagus that we see situated over reactor number 4 today. These soldiers could only spend a maximum of 40 to 90 seconds working on the rooftop of the surrounding buildings because of the extremely high doses of radiation given off by the blocks of graphite and other debris. Though the soldiers were only supposed to perform the role of the bio-robot a maximum of once, some soldiers reported having done this task five or six times. Only 10% of the debris cleaned from the roof was performed by robots. The other 90% was removed by 3,828 men who absorbed, on average, an estimated dose of 25 rem, or 250 microsieverts, of radiation each. Finally, as we round out the cleanup portion, I want to quickly reference the construction of the sarcophagus. Without this structure, radiation would continue to leak from the reactor. Initial design and construction would commence roughly three weeks following the explosion at reactor number four. It consists of a concrete and steel shell encapsulating the exposed remains of the reactor. The construction workers had to be protected from radiation, and techniques such as crane drivers working from lead-lined control cabins were employed. The construction work included erecting walls around the perimeter, clearing and surface concreting the surrounding ground to remove sources of radiation, and to allow access for large construction machinery. Constructing a thick radiation shielding wall to protect the workers in reactor number 3 fabricating a high-rise buttress to strengthen weak parts of the old structure, constructing an overall roof, and provisioning a ventilation extract system to capture any airborne contamination arising within the shelter. Even with all of the precautionary measures taken to clean, remediate, and prevent further radiation leaking from the area, the land and surrounding environment has been deemed unsafe for humans for the next several thousand years. Health and safety remain a top priority more than 30 years later following this disaster. Astonishingly, deaths and injuries reported in the immediate aftermath remained relatively low for an event of this type. 28 died as a result of ARS, 237 injuries of those, 134 showed symptoms of ARS. 28 of the hospitalized workers died within the following three months, all of whom were hospitalized for ARS and 26 were among the 56 patients hospitalized for burns. Among the fatalities in the acute phase, approximately three months, all but one patient with grade 2 ARS were hospitalized for grade 3 or grade 4 ARS. 15 out of 22 patients with grade 3 ARS survived. Only one patient out of the 21 with grade 4 ARS survived. Long-term studies have shown no real increase in various solid cancers, with one exception being children and thyroid cancer. Childhood thyroid cancer is an exception, with approximately 4,000 new incidences in the general population by 2002 within contaminated regions in Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine, most of which are attributed to high environmental levels of radioactive iodine shortly after the accident.
The recovery rate is about 99%, with only 15 terminal cases, 9 deaths, at the time of this report. There has been no increase in mutation rate among the children of the liquidators or general population living in the contaminated areas. So that was one hell of an episode. I want to thank you all for listening, and furthermore, for supporting the show. Be sure to click the follow or subscribe button if you enjoyed this episode. If you're new here, welcome once again. Feel free to check out some of the other episodes. Finally, if you have any suggestions for an episode, please feel free to email the show. Till next week, this has been Destination Disaster. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.